take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, as we continue our journey uh, through this little epistle, looking this morning at the subject matter, Christian attitudes about those in authority in the culture. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? I'll begin reading in verse 13, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God." For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers, overseer of your souls. Father, we're so grateful for your word and how throughout this letter... We have seen your commands and your instructions to us about how the body of Christ is to live and carry out our faith out in a secular world. Lord, we've been reminded that we are strangers here. We are, we are sojourners. We are exiles. We're to be like Abraham who is looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Lord, I pray that in all things we would seek first your kingdom and that we would be the salt and the light in society that Jesus has called us to be. Now, Lord, I can speak to ears, but it takes your spirit to speak to hearts. So we ask your Holy Spirit to do that. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a hare who, boasting how he could run faster than anyone else, was forever teasing the tortoise because of its slowness. 
Then one day the irate tortoise answered back, Who do you think you are? There's no denying that you're fast, but even you can be beaten. The hare squealed with laughter. Beaten in a race? By whom? Certainly not by you. Well, I bet there's nobody in the world that can win against me. I'm so speedy. Why don't you try to beat me? Annoyed by such bragging, the tortoise accepted the challenge. A course was planned, and the next day at dawn, they stood at the starting line. The hare yawned sleepily as the meek tortoise trudged slowly off. When the hare saw how painfully slow his rival was, he decided half asleep on his feet to have a quick nap. Take your time, he said. I'll have 40 winks and catch up with you in a moment. The hare woke with a start from a fitful sleep and gazed around looking for the tortoise. But the creature was only a short distance away, having barely covered a third of the course. Breathing a sigh of relief, the hare decided he might as well have breakfast too. And off he went to munch on some cabbages he had noticed in a nearby field. But the heavy meal and the hot sun made his eyelids droop. And so with a careless glance at the tortoise, now halfway along the course, he decided to have another snooze before flashing past the finishing line. And smiling at the thought of the look on the tortoise's face when it saw the hare speed by, he fell asleep and was soon snoring happily. The sun started to sink below the horizon. And the tortoise who had been plodding towards the winning post since morning was scarcely a yard from the finish line. At that very point, the hare awoke with a jolt. He could see the tortoise, a speck in the distance, and away he dashed. He leaped and bounded at a great rate, his tongue hanging out and gasping for breath. Just a little more and he'd be first to the finish. But his last leap was just too late. For the tortoise had beaten him to the finish line. Poor hare. Tired and in disgrace, he slumped down beside the tortoise who was silently smiling at him. Slowly does it every time, he said. Now, folks, let me ask you to hold the thought of the application of that Aesop fable until the end of the message today, and I'll tie it back in. You know, it's interesting to me how right here at Easter, we're in verses that have to do with the church's witness in society. We are about to celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is our faith a private matter? No. Or I should say it is certainly not only a private matter. 
In two weeks we will be celebrating Palm Sunday and then Easter after that. And you know at this time of the year on the church calendar I can envision people coming up to you at work who know that you are a Christian and they're not and they're asking you it's Easter tell me as a believer in Jesus Christ what does this time of the year mean to you? What exactly is Easter? all about what are you going to tell them here's the big question will they see how the message of the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has actually impacted and transformed your life will they see that Peter wants his audience to understand their faith is to filter throughout every relationship they have. To one another in the church, to their marriage, to the government, to their working relationships. Every single relationship they have in life is to be altered because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today let's look at government and work. And what we're going to see today are attitudes and actions that will strengthen our witness in society and so strengthen our impact as the church. The first thing I want you to uh, note today is Christian attitudes about those in authority. Christian attitudes about those in authority. He says again in verse 13 be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Look at what Peter is saying here. Submit yourselves or be subject for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Now folks, I personally think that Peter is thinking primarily of the secular powers, the secular authorities. But let's think a moment, however, about this New Testament principle of submission. Because I think if we do that, we'll see how this principle runs so much throughout the life of the New Testament. And so I want us to see what the Bible says in a number of different places about submitting ourselves now granted we don't want to hear that thought do we because we like to assert our own authority we like to assert our own individuality we don't even want to think about living in submission to anybody and yet it's a New Testament principle and so let's think about what the New Testament says about it and in a broader respect 
And to see what the Bible says about submission, we don't have to go very far because in the very next chapter, chapter 3, Peter is going to talk to wives about submitting to their husbands. Now true, a husband is to love his wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The husband is to have an agape type love, a self-giving, self-sacrificing type love for his wife. And he's to honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life and yet at the same time the Bible says the Christian wife is to submit herself to her husband and then you go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 if we were to turn back there and Hebrews chapter 13 and you see that in the church church members are to be in submission to their leaders in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12 Paul says we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work be at peace among yourselves and then in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 the scripture says obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you I love what the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter did Richard Baxter established that in his flock every single family in his flock had to meet with him personally for accountability it was a requirement in the church Every single member and every single family had to sit down with him and he would ask them, what are you going through in your life? Where are you struggling in your Christian life? Where can I help you? Where can I point you to in the Bible? How can I instruct you? How can I pray for you and encourage you? And it was a requirement that every single member meet with their pastor and go through that process from time to time. When I read that, I thought, how would that go over in the modern day church today for it to be a requirement? And then in Ephesians 5.21, Paul says that in the body of Christ, in the church, we are also to be submitting to one another. And we're to be looking after one another's needs. And so in the home, in marriage, in the church, in society at large, there's this thought of submission. But while all of those different scenarios may be in Peter's mind to some degree, I don't think they're primarily what he's thinking of here. I think his intent here is submission to your government leaders at all levels. The church is to be a testimony in that regard. Now, is there a time and a place for civil disobedience? Absolutely. In fact, we see that in Simon Peter himself in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the authorities said to him after they released him from prison, we're charging you not to preach at all anymore in this town in the name of Jesus Christ. And Peter said, you judge for yourselves what is right, whether to obey man or to obey God. But as for us, we're going to obey God. 
Because there is salvation in no one else other than Jesus Christ. And so Simon Peter himself rebelled against the authorities. But outside of extreme circumstances like that, I think in most everyday circumstances, he is saying that Christians in the church need to be model citizens. History is littered with too many groups who have come along in society and ended up just being troublemakers. And Peter doesn't want to see the church get labeled with something like that. Verse 15 is a, is a key verse in this whole pericope, this whole paragraph. He says, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There are plenty of ignorant people out in society ready to run down the church and say all kinds of things against us. Now isn't it interesting how on God's clock things in the world are coming right back around to how it was in Simon Peter's day. I, I take that to be a wake up call. I think the time of Christ coming might be close. One thing's for sure, it's closer than it's ever been before. All of these insults against Christians today, Peter is saying that, that you need to live your life in such a way that people out there in the world would look, would look at others out in the world, others who are insulting you, and they would say, what in the world are you talking about? Let your life show that the world, let it show the world that those who slander you have a loose screw, to use the modern vernacular. Be a good citizen, be a good model in all things. And what's going to cause this? Well, two things that he's just mentioned. Number one, there's the submission to those in authority. And then number two, he says here, that we are to be about good works. We are to do good. Christians are to do good not as the root of our salvation, but as the fruit of our salvation. He says, live as free people, but a free people who use their freedom for good. Don't try to see what you can get away with. And he uses a play on words here, free, but at the same time, God's slaves. Free, but slaves. Now let's add a third item here that will make the world sit up and take notice. He talks thirdly here about a commitment to God that is evident in your life that people would see an unquestionable commitment to Christ that you have. Folks, do you think that the unbelieving society around Daniel saw in Daniel a commitment, an unquestioning commitment that he had to God? Absolutely. And Peter is saying, let people see that commitment in you. And then fourthly, he gives a quick laundry list of more things that will make the church stand out in society in the right kind of way. He mentions here, respect for everyone. 
or honoring everyone. Look there at verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Just kind of a laundry list. And he begins that with saying respect for everyone. Now boy, that would be revolutionary today, wouldn't it? Everybody respecting everyone. Why respect everyone? Because everyone is an image bearer. You see folks, here's where theology impacts life. Because you ask the, you ask the man out in the world who's not a believer, do you think we ought to respect people? Oh yeah, we ought to respect people. Why do you say we ought to respect people? Well, I don't know. We just need to respect people. But you ask a Christian, why do we respect people and what should our answer be? That's easy because that person bears the image of God. Now since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the image of God is marred in people, but it's still there. Every single person you rub shoulders with this week, every single person you communicate with this week is somebody who's made in the image of God. Now they may need Christ and you need to witness to them. But nonetheless, they are made in the image of God. And so as believers, that ought, to, that ought to govern how we discourse with one another because everybody that we deal with is an image bearer. And then, and then uh, Peter says here, uh, because of Christian love of the brethren. That's something else that ought to make the church stand out in society. Christian love. Remember what Jesus said about that in John 13? Everybody will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And then next he says here in verse 17, fear God. And then he says, honor the emperor. Who was the emperor at the time? Nero. And Nero would be the very one who would give the command to have the apostle Peter killed. And so Peter is admonishing the church to honor the very one who's going to end up taking his life. Folks, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about American politics today. Think about both sides of the aisle. For years, Republicans bashed Obama. Now, Democrats bash, uh, bash uh, Trump. And then, and, and then people within their own party even bash other people even in their own party. I'm not saying you can't have your opinions on things. I'm not saying you can't speak your opinions. One of the privileges that we have in a republic like America is that we can speak up. We can challenge laws and decisions. We can work for transformation and change. But don't these verses right here have something to say to the church about our attitude to whoever is in authority, even to those that we don't agree with? Don't these verses right here say something about that? Don't they impact the kind of dialogue we are to have? You know, there's something I struggle with. 
And, and I know there's huge dangers in giving personal illustrations like I'm about to. And certainly some of you think that I haven't always kept my mouth shut when it comes to politics. But I don't think I've been disrespectful to any leader, his personhood. Did I question how a president who was a who was a professing believer in Jesus Christ, how he could work to change laws in society against the God-ordained institution of marriage? Did I speak out about that? Yes, indeed I did. And guess what? I would have spoken out about that regardless of his party affiliation. For you see, in making a decision like that, he entered into biblical territory. And that's territory where the pastor and the theologian lives. Why would a pastor not object when a president or a congress goes changing something like marriage that God has ordained? When politicians venture into the biblical arena, in my opinion, they open themselves up to, to the public criticism or praise, whatever the case may be. But for years I have felt pressure, maybe, maybe just self-imposed pressure, to turn pits into a political headquarters anytime we're coming up on an election cycle. Now you know where I stand. I stand exactly where 80% of you stand. And so could I get away with making pits just another political headquarters? Probably so. But I want to say to you, I'm not going to do that. Yes, I'll come out on issues all the time. I think you've discovered that I'm not afraid to address just about any issue. We'll put materials out having to do with issues. There's no reason for the church to be silent on issues that affect people's lives. That almost seems to be contradictory to me that the church would be silent on issues that affect people's lives. Isn't the church God's ordained institution for dealing with people's lives? I want to be clear though that just because issues are oftentimes clothed in politics, I am approaching it, I, I, I'm not approaching it from the party angle at all. I'm simply trying to address it from the angle of either the merit or the demerit of the issue itself. When a pastor addresses an issue, what do people hear? People hear politics. But I want to ask you not to do that. If I preach a pro-life message, I'm not simply trying to advertise one particular party affiliation. I'm simply trying to address an issue from the biblical angle. And if I preach on Christians being more involved in world hunger or poverty, that doesn't mean that I'm advertising the other party. I'm simply addressing an issue that the church needs to be involved in. By the grace of God, as long as I'm your pastor, we're not going to be an outpost for any political party. 
And I've had something happen that cemented that into my mind and into my convictions. I know of a church right now, they got themselves so involved in politics led by the pastor that one of their very respected senior adult members actually said to me recently, he said, and this is an exact quote, he said, we know that we will never again reach another Democrat for Christ. He said, we know in society where we are, a Democrat will never walk through the doors of our church to worship. And then he went on to say something that shocked me because I wondered if he had, had, had really thought through his words. He said, we are in a very heavily democratic area of our city. And all of a sudden my brain was going ding, 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 does not compute, does not compute. You've just told me, you've just said your church will never again reach another Democrat for Christ. And yet you're positioned in an area of the city that is a Democrat stronghold. And so you know what they've done? They've let politics trump the gospel. And I think that is a terrible thing to do. <clears throat> I know many of you want me to speak out more. And some of you don't like it when I speak out at all. It's a lose-lose area for a pastor. But my point is that we can get involved in politics to the point that we lose opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am not going to do that. And that's my point in everything I've said. We can preach politics and forfeit preaching Christ if we're not careful. And, and again, if we do that, we've made the wrong decision. I am a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Get involved in issues. Yes. But you and I had better be very careful of hitching our post to certain parties. Because next year they might end up coming out and doing something that you would be ashamed of. You hit your post to Jesus Christ though and you'll never be disappointed. I'm beginning to see a great deal of wisdom in Dr. Billy Graham how he said that all through the years that was an arena he wasn't going to get involved in. He was going to concentrate on simply preaching Jesus and preaching the Word of God. Now what does that have to do with our text? <clears throat> I'm cautioning people on both sides of the aisle to watch how we carry on discussions about whoever is in office because if we're not careful we will completely cut ourselves off from reaching people for Christ who are in the other party. What did Paul say as he went to the Corinthians? He went to the Corinthians and he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That seems to me to be a pretty good thing to do. Amen? 
Now let's move on to another hot topic in this passage. And this next one is a topic that people, people sometimes want to say, why, 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 why in the world did Peter not just come out and prohibit it altogether? So this next one beginning in verse 18, I want to talk to you about Christian attitudes about existing social structures. Pick up reading with me in verse 18. In verse 18 he says, Servants or slaves be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you see sin and are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps people wonder why Peter didn't just come right out and condemn slavery not only does he not condemn it but I want you to notice that he even gives instructions for living within it why why would he have done something like that well I'll get to that Slavery was huge in the Roman Empire. John R.W. Stott in his commentary on the book of Ephesians notes that a high percentage of the Roman Empire were slaves. He writes that it's been computed that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. You heard that number right. 60 million they constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers but educated people as well like doctors and teachers and administrators John R.W. Stott writes the institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as a part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity now granted it had some different nuances to it from slavery in modern times for example people would make slaves out of themselves in order to pay off a debt but I think we can't get out of it that easily by saying oh it was different back then and so it was okay no but it was so big and Christianity was so small at this point that had Christians rebelled Christianity would have been stamped out by the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire would have just clicked right along and Christianity would have never had the opportunity that it ended up having of making inroads into society and changing that society God takes the slow approach oftentimes. Guess what, folks? Christianity would indeed eventually have a great impact on bringing slavery to an end. Just read sometime about the life of William 
uh, William Wilberforce. After he became a committed evangelical Christian, he had a burning desire to see things like slavery abolished. And so he tirelessly worked to that end. Through his efforts, legislation was passed in Parliament ending slavery, putting an end to slavery in most of the British Empire. Three days later, William Wilberforce died of poor health. But God had let him see his dream come true. And so you see, in time, God would indeed address the evils of slavery. But somebody once said about God when, when they were going through a trial and they were praying and it didn't seem to be coming to an end. Somebody once said, you know what the problem with God is? I'm in a hurry and he's not. <laughs> Isn't that the way it feels sometimes? I'm in a hurry for something to change and God's not. I want to say to you, Christian, hang in there. Husband dealing with a wayward wife or wife dealing with a wayward husband, hang in there in that marriage. Parents dealing with rebellious children or grandparents dealing with rebellious children, hang in there. Keep laying that matter at the foot of the cross and keep praying and keep trusting God. Don't give up on that situation too soon because if you give up, you might miss out on seeing what God is able to do. And when you see what God does, it will have been worth the wait. You know who I think of in Scripture? I think of a couple of, couple of characters in the Bible. I think of Joseph. And you know a problem we have in reading our Bible sometimes, like, like in historical narrative? You know a problem we have reading our Bibles is that we'll turn the page and we'll read about the very next situation Joseph, for, for instance, went through. And, and we'll come to the conclusion that the events of the preceding chapter and that chapter, that the events are back to back. One of, one of the series of events happened one day and the, the next chapter records what happened the next day. And it's not like that at all. You read about Joseph and guess what? Sometimes decades passed between those different scenarios in Joseph's life. Did God work? Yes. But he worked slowly. What about Abraham? Remember Abraham? God came to Abraham when Abraham was 75 years old and said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham's like, what? I'm going to give you a son. You and your wife Sarah are going to have your own child. I'm going to give you a son. And they waited and they waited and they waited. And finally they ended up taking matters into their own hands. And Ishmael was the result of that, but that wasn't what God had in mind. 
And you go back and you read about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And guess what? They waited 25 years on God's promise for Isaac. 25 years. Did God work? Was God true to his word? Was God true to his promise? Yes. But it took 25 years. Slavery usually ends everywhere Christianity gets a strong, strong enough foothold over time. It's not always a quick process uh, even when it begins. It's not always easy. It's not always pretty. And yet Christianity addresses it because Christianity recognizes the dignity of every single person. Peter is addressing that here with slaves. He's saying you hang in there and you do good. If you suffer, you let it be suffering for doing good, not for doing bad. You say that's not fair. And you're right, that's not fair. But look at the example that Peter gives here. He gives the example of Jesus. Next time you want to complain about things not being fair, look at Jesus. We're getting ready to observe Easter and, and, and Passion Week is soon to be upon us. That week that started with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on that donkey. I want you to think a moment of what happened after that that week. In John chapter 9, I would encourage you later on today to read John chapter 9. Trying to appease the crowds, Pilate had Jesus flogged. Fair? Not at all. Because Jesus was innocent. Flogging was deadly. They would tie the hands together. They would walk you up to a post that had a ring in it. And they would pull your hands up real high and tie you to that ring in that post. And they would bring you off your, your heel so you're standing uh, tiptoe. So all the skin on your torso is pulled tight. And, and then there would be this huge muscular Roman soldier who would get this leather whip. And in this whip there, there were pieces of metal and bone and glass woven into it. And he would begin beating the victim. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells of victims who were flogged until internal organs and intestines were exposed. And sometimes they literally hung out of the body or spilled out of the abdominal cavity. And that's what Jesus endured. In fact, Scripture seems to indicate that Jesus' flogging was particularly severe. Fair? I don't think so. And then they nailed him to a cross and crucified him. Fair? Hardly. Christians, every time we want to bellyache and complain about fair, Simon Peter is saying here, stop and look to Jesus and look at what he suffered and what he endured. 
You need to hang in there. When I read this section of 1 Peter this week, it, it even challenged some, some things about how we think of evangelism. We want to knock on a door and witness. By the way, I hope you do that occasionally. I'll never forget knocking on a door right across the road from the church here and two ladies, a mother and, and a daughter, and the mother was probably up in, the, in her 80s. And as we knocked on the door, they said, we can't believe this. Would you please come in? They were talking uh, every night. They said they got out their Bibles and they, and they talked about God's plan God you see the Holy Spirit had been at work in them how in the world is a person saved how can I be saved and they didn't know how and the daughter she claimed she was a Christian but she said I have no idea how to sit down with the Bible and share the gospel with my mom and the mom was just crying out to know the Lord and I said would you like me to show you and she said yes and so Dathan Hall and myself we opened up our Bible to Romans and we went through Romans the mother this senior adult woman she was just crying and she said I want that I need Christ I need Christ and she prayed right there to receive Christ drive-by evangelism is there a place for it absolutely but that is not what Peter is talking about here Sometimes we want the drive-by just so we can get it done and get back whatever we want to do. But Peter is talking to the church here about the day in, week in and week out, month in, month out, year in and year out, church living before an unbelieving society as salt and light and being such a good testimony that eventually you win over some of your opponents. And it takes time. We want to be in a hurry. But it takes time. And sometimes it's difficult. And we pour blood, sweat, and tears into a relationship that we have because we want to see that person come to Christ. And it takes so long. Maybe you're going through something in your life that you want it to end. It just seems like it'll never end. It just seems like it takes so long and you want to give up. And Peter is saying to believers, don't give up. Back to Aesop's fable, the hare and the tortoise. He's talking here about the tortoise approach, Itney. Not looking for quick and easy ways, but church day in and day out picking up your cross, denying yourself and following Jesus and doing that today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. The tortoise approach. Until you cross the finish line and hear from Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. So you know what I'd say to you this morning? Tortoises, take your places. Line up on the starting line 
and get going. Methodically plug through day in and day out. Being that positive witness for Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me please? I want to ask you to examine your attitude today to leaders in every category of your life. Do you pray for them? Is there a mindset that if left unchecked will actually end up hurting your testimony? Ask God for his help. Have you gotten so impatient with God over something that you actually missed what he might have done. Or maybe he hasn't worked yet and you've taken things into your own hands. Understand when we do that, we'll make a mess of things. Keep praying for that loved one. Keep praying about that circumstance. Keep praying about that trial. Do you need Christ? Has the Holy Spirit been doing what only He can do? Drawing you to Christ? He's the one who regenerates you. He's the one who enables you to be able to repent and place your faith in Christ and experience the transformation of the new birth. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, it is a spiritual birth that happens from on high that only God can do in your heart. But as part of that, you're called upon to step out and follow Him and give testimony of your faith in Christ. Do you need to do that today? I'll be here to pray with you. Maybe you need prayer over some difficult circumstance in your life that's not rectifying itself overnight. There'll be others who can pray with you here too. Maybe you need a church home where you can experience Christian love and growth together. We'd love to be your church home. You step out and come forward during the invitation song. Lord, we ask this hour that you would work your work to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.